Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, we had a week hiatus, but, you know, work gets in the way, stuff gets in the way, it happens, but no matter, no fret, we're back. I am your host, Johnny Crane. This is episode 14 of Ahead of the Count. I am your host this afternoon slash evening, whenever you're watching, joined by my co-host, Sean Clark. Sean, buddy, I see you have a hoodie on. I know you told me it isn't cold, but how are you doing today? Doing great, yeah. Bundled up in my apartment because my roommate wanted to make this a refrigerator apartment. But hey, that hey, I sleep really well, so that's good. Hey, we, we had a snow game in the NFL, so it is starting to become that time of year. The, the, December football is the best time of the year, and we are approaching it. We got a little tease this weekend, so I'm doing well. Let's get into this. Yes, there was a snow game in the Kansas City Chiefs-Broncos game. Let me tell you, it snowed here in Montrose, too. It was five degrees going to work. It sucked cleaning off the truck. It sucked unplugging the truck and driving in the snow. But whatever. Let's get into some uh, sports, shall we? So, Cameron might be crying in tears of joy later tonight. Depending on when you watch this, Game 6 of the World Series is tonight. The Dodgers will face the Tampa Bay Rays, but... Before we even talk about that game, we have to talk about the two previous games. So, game four, boy, oh boy, was it a collapse if there ever was one? Los Angeles Dodgers had the lead going into the ninth inning, and then a double error led to the Rays walking off the Dodgers eight runs to seven. Sean, let me start with you. Take me through this game. Take me through that inning. What do you think of that game overall? Well, what an insane classic that was. The lead changed hands over five different times. The Dodgers had the lead four different times, and they lost the lead every single time. They were up seven to six in the bottom of the ninth. More part of the reason why it was so close is because, for some reason, Dave Roberts decided to leave in Pedro Baez, and he gave up three runs. Great job, Dave Roberts. In the bottom of the ninth, we saw the Rays have runners on first and second. Uh, Kiermaier in Arroz Arena were on base. Brett Phillips was at to, up to bat. And what proceeded was one of the craziest plays that this generation of baseball fans have ever seen. Phillips hit, hit a, a line drive shot to center field, center field to Chris Taylor, who was in center field because Cody Bellinger arm was hurting and he was on the DH. Taylor bobbles it, almost Trent Grisham's it, but he bobbles it. Kiermaier scores. And Rose Arena goes to home plate. He stumbles, which, what are you doing, Rose Arena? But that doesn't matter because it, Max Muncy catches the ball near the pitcher's mound, and he throws it home, but Will Smith takes his eyes off the ball, and Kenley Jansen just stands there, doesn't cover home, home base, and despite a Rosalina stumbling, he dives the home plate. There's no contest, con contesting at the plate. The, the Rays win in one of the most insane walk-offs you will ever see. I have watched this play about 30 times. Now, I just got to quickly say this. We all give Joe Buck a lot of hate and criticism. He's one of the most disliked play-by-play -play announcers that's, like, mainstream. 
But I'll tell you what, his call was exceptional on this play. I, everything about it was great. So I got to say that because I love listening to his call on that play. But the the fact that the the fact that the Rays won this way just shows how gritty of a team they are. They won Game Two, but Game Four was the game they were supposed to lose, and they pulled it out. It was insane. Chris Taylor, what are you doing? Kenley, even more, what are you doing? And Will Smith, the ultimate, what are you doing? It's just like in football. Secure the ball and then make your move. You can't do anything without the ball. Simple as that. When I look at that final play, and I've watched it, like I said, 30 times, Will Smith deserves the majority of the blame. You can't take your eyes off the ball. Plain and simple. We're talking about majority of blame for this play, but I'm going to rewind the clocks to the sixth inning. So Brendan Lau hit a three-run shot off of Pedro Baez. The following inning, the Dodgers come back. They score a run. They tie. They actually overtake the Rays for the lead again. Now, here's my problem. So before we even get to the ninth inning drama, Dave Roberts told Pedro Baez after that three-run shot he gave up, that he was done. He was done with the game. He was not going to pitch in the following inning. But then Dave Roberts pulled a psych and he told Pedro Baez, actually, you're going back out there, even though I already told you, you weren't going to pitch. And what does Pedro Baez do? Remember, the Dodgers are leading six to five after they did not have the lead the prior half inning when that three-run shot happened. Kevin Kiermaier hit another home run to tie the game up, 6-6. Looking back at this, before we even look at the ninth inning stuff, to me, it's all about communication. It's all about communication, no matter what you're talking about, but especially it's prevalent between your manager and your pitcher. You telling your reliever he is done after a certain inning, and then you say, wait a minute, wait, I lied. You're going back out there. That destroys the psyche of a pitcher. The pitcher is completely overwhelmed. He's completely unprepared for the inning that's following the inning he already did because he thought he was done. To me, that just exemplifies if the Dodgers lose this world series, that Dave Roberts is not the manager for the Dodgers moving forward. I think he's a really good manager, but these kind of decisions are decisions managers do not make least of all in the world series. You just can't make a decision like that. Now let's look at the ninth inning. This was a double error. I don't know why they didn't score it like that to begin with, but when you look at the play as it transpired, and I agree with you, by the way, on that Joe Buck call. It was a really great call. Balls take a bounce whenever they're going into the outfield, depending on how the turf is, whether it's grass or turf, depending on how uneven the ground is, the balls can take a bounce no matter the turf you're playing on. The Chris Taylor bobble, when he was going to the ball, I'm not going to say he was lackadaisical going to the ball, but I think he definitely misjudged the bounce, and that's why that bobble happened. But he still got the ball. He threw it home. He threw it to Muncie as the cutoff man, and then Muncie threw it to home to Will Smith. Now, looking at this play, I was watching – again, I've watched this, like you said. I've watched this close to 30 times. I'm probably exaggerating by a couple, but no matter. I've watched it a bunch. The more I watch it, the more I was really looking at the positioning of Kenley Jansen. Whenever a play like that transpires, your pitcher is always told to go home to back up the catcher in case some miscue happens. And where was Kenley Jansen where the, when this play happened? He was dawdling around next to Randy Rosarena. 
Now, I get it to a degree. Randy Rosarena was caught in no man's land when that play was going on. Jansen was probably positioned next to Rosarena to potentially get him in a pickle and get him out. Boom. Game's over. Inning's over, I mean. Move on to the next inning. But instead, that didn't happen. And Will Smith bobbled the ball. It went behind Will Smith. And Kenley Jansen still didn't do anything. He was still standing there. I didn't see the urgency to run toward home plate to realize, oh, wait a minute. Will Smith is probably going to run toward the ball. He's going to throw it back to me. I need to make the play at home. If there is a play at home, that didn't happen. So when you look at this, and going into the play, it was a one-two count with two outs. Jansen had one more pitch to make. He left a hanging curve, an indoor curve, not curve, a cutter, I mean. And everything happened. So when you look at this play overall, it was a loss of fundamentals. And when you look at the sixth inning, that sort of led to everything happening in the ninth inning to a degree, a loss of communication. And when you think of the Los Angeles Dodgers, you really don't think of them making basic mistakes or basic communication miscues. You don't see that from this team. There's a reason they had the best record in all of baseball. There's a reason they've always been at the top of the National League for the past seven years. There's a reason for that. It's because of sound base running, sound defense, and great communication. And I didn't see any of it in this half inning. Moving on to game five. So how are the Dodgers going to respond? Well, Clayton Kershaw is on the mound. And to many Dodger fans, they were thinking, oh, boy, it's going to be another one of those games, St. Louis Cardinals-esque. But no, actually. Clayton Kershaw actually had a pretty solid game. And he has two wins in the World Series. And he exited that game with a 2.31 World Series ERA. He was not the problem. In fact, the bullpen was also not that much of a problem either. There was pretty awesome, pretty sound. Dustin May, Gonzalez, and Blake Trinan closed it out after Kershaw left. And they won 4-2. to two. So, Sean, take me through this game. Was this a good bounce-back win for the Dodgers? Was this a good game for Dave Roberts? Take me through it. Well... The fact that the Dodgers jumped out to three runs in the first two innings was really huge. Considering that less than 24 hours ago, they had the crazy ending. It was a really great bounce back performance and they really seemed to be on the same page there. Like you said, communication was improved. And yes, leave it to Johnny Crane to preaching about communication like he always does. I just, just got to point that out. But as far as, as far as Dave Roberts go, he did pull Clayton. He did play pull Clayton Kershaw, but why would you do it after he got out two batters on two pitches out in the same inning? That was a weird decision. Yes, it worked out, and they got out of the inning without any damage. But that was a really weird decision. Also, they had a four-two lead through the last few innings, which the bullpen did well, but. Why wasn't Bruce Dark Gratterall the closer? Why was it Blake Trinan, the guy who gave up the home run to Austin Riley in game one of the NLCS? That was also another very puzzling decision. So while the Dodgers came through and did what they had to do, still some very questionable decisions from Dave Roberts. Gratterall has been absolutely dynamite. I don't think he's given up a run this postseason. He has been absolutely phenomenal his his fastballs are nearly unhittable 
there's just so much heat on them. Blake Trinan is solid. He was a solid closer for the for the Oakland Athletics. But like I said, he gave up a winning home run to Austin Riley. And you're going to throw him in there at the bottom of the ninth inning? Oh, and by the way, Trinan has not made a postseason save in his career. Not one. And you're going to throw him in there at the bottom of the ninth? Okay, it's, it's a bold strategy, Cotton. But, yeah, it's, it was a very questionable move from Dave Roberts. But, hey, it worked out. They did what they had to do, and Dave Roberts got away with it. But I think it just goes to show how the Dodgers scoring three runs in the first two innings showed that, hey, we're not going to just fold after game four. The fact that they were able to bounce back like this is a very telling sign of how good the Dodgers are, how much better they are in a lot of areas than Tampa Bay, and how if they can just take care of business tonight, they will be World Series champions. Yeah, on paper, there were a lot of questionable decisions. The one decision you didn't mention that I actually wanted to hit on was the usage of Dustin May. Dustin May went an inning and two-thirds. He looked really good, actually. I thought he probably could have went another inning. So instead of going with Victor Gonzalez in the following to close out that inning and for the inning after, I thought you probably could have left Dustin May in. The only thing that I think makes sense with the moves you mentioned and the move I mentioned with Dustin May is the fact that Dave Roberts is saving his chips for tonight's game. And again, depending on when you're watching and listening to this, folks, game six is tonight. So I was thinking possibly what they're doing is they're saving Kenley Jansen, number one. They're saving Dustin May, number two. And they're preserving, at least to a degree, the pitchers you mentioned as well, Bruce Dargratterall in particular. Because hypothetically, in game six, say the starter only goes four or five you bring in those relievers on a matchup basement and with that involved instead of using Dustin May for an extra inning in the in the previous game you can use that inning he was going to pitch in that game in this game instead so there's a little bit of a trade-off there and that's kind of the issue I have with Dave Roberts now Dave Roberts is going to stick with his guys he likes to put his guys in a good position to succeed now, some of those positions, like you mentioned, Blake Trinan has never had a save before in, the, in this particular kind of game, but he puts his players in certain positions to succeed, even if they haven't done it before. If it works, it's a really good and tangible morale thing for the players. If it doesn't work, well, you get the controversy that the Pedro Baez thing in particular brings. So there's a little bit of a trade-off there, but Regardless of the decision, the Dodgers won that game four to two. And really what I want to hit on is the lineup for the Dodgers before we move on. When you look at Corey Seager, Justin Turner, and Max Muncy, when you look at the latter two in particular, Justin Turner and Max Muncy, going into the World Series, they were kind of scuffling. You know, Max Muncy had some walks here and there. Justin Turner had some nice defensive plays. He had a good eye, but he wasn't really hitting the ball. He wasn't finding the gaps. He wasn't hitting any doubles or extra base hits which is what Justin Turner is known for. Max Muncy really wasn't hitting the bombs that he's known for. But when you look at these two players in the postseason, especially in the World Series, the World Series numbers are by far and large better than the previous postseason matchups. 
all three, Seager, Turner, and Muncie, all have an, a World Series OPS of over 1,000. If you can have an OPS over 1,000 from three of your batters in the middle of your order, that's really, really good. And it goes back to the Dave Roberts trusting his guys thing. Going into the World Series, people thought, okay, maybe he'll move Justin Turner down in the lineup. Turner was hitting third throughout the postseason. Again, he wasn't hitting well. Maybe it's time for a change. But no, he kept Justin Turner in the three-hole, and look what happened. Justin Turner finally is hitting like the postseason Justin Turner has in the past. So when you stick with your guys, at times, it pays off. And I think from an offensive standpoint, it has definitely paid off for the Dodgers. So if those three can keep on hitting, if Bellinger can hit a bomb here and there, if the bottom of the order can make the pitchers work for their outs that the Dodgers have done, then the Dodgers are going to be in a very prime position to win game six of the World Series, no matter what pitcher is put on the mound. Because if you can make a pitcher work like they did Tyler Glass now, that's really good because you can knock the pitcher out early. And if that other team you're facing, if their particular strength comes in their bullpen, well, you're seeing their bullpen that much earlier, which gives you much more opportunity to find a matchup in your favor and to eliminate the strength and get to the bullpen, which in under any other normal circumstances, if the starter goes six or seven innings, you might not have that opportunity to do. So overall, I think game five for the Dodgers, even though there were some questionable decisions, I think the decisions might make sense depending on what happens in game six and how Dave Roberts utilizes his lineup and utilizes his bullpen. So I think that'll be the key for that game. So, Sean, that leads me to the final thing. Game six is tonight. Again, folks, depending on when you're listening, game six might have already happened. But game six, who do you have? I think the Dodgers closed this out. I think game five was the pivotal win the Dodgers needed. 2017 World Series, game five did not go the Dodgers' way. And – at the time was considered a baseball classic. It isn't now because of obvious cheating scandals, but this time the Dodgers have the three, two advantage. And I think that the, that the Dodgers have the momentum. They figured it out. Let me point, let me make this comparison. Cause you know, I love to make historical comparisons. That's what I do. 2013 world series, Boston Red Sox against the St. Louis Cardinals. The St. Louis Cardinals won game three on one of the craziest World Series endings ever. It was the obstruction call at the end of game three, where, where the Red Sox had the winning run, but it was called back because of an obstruction call. So great job, Red Sox. So they lost that game. Cardinals went up two to one, but they didn't win after that. The next game, Colton one was picked off and the game was over. And the Red Sox won from there because the Red Sox were simply the better team in that World Series. And I think that's the same case here. I think the Dodgers have been the better team in this World Series aside from game two. And I think that the pitching for the Dodgers really steps up tonight. It's, and as good as Blake Snell is, he's never really been in this much of a pressure spot. And I just, ha- I just have this gut feeling that the Dodgers are going to go all out to make sure they don't force the game seven. They've been there. They went there three years ago. They don't want to see that again. Yes, if I'm a Dodgers fan, I would feel good about game seven because of Walker Buehler being the starter. And he has been absolutely, absolute money. But, again, that's a bit of a pressure pack situation. They want to close this out. They had to play against Atlanta in game seven. They don't want to 
they don't want to play another game seven here. So I think they close it out just barely. The Rays are going to give a fight. And I'm just going to quickly say this, regardless of what happens tonight and if there's a game seven, the Tampa Bay Rays have earned the respect of every baseball fan in the country. They have been, they have been a joy to watch. They have, they have played baseball the right way. They're, they have, they have made small markets. They, they've given hope to small markets once again, and they have been, they've been a great story. And it, I'm very glad that they were the ones that came out of the American League. They were the right teams to come out of the American League. So whatever happens tonight, props props to them for a fantastic season. They should hold their heads high. They, they, they should be set up to win in the AL East the next few years. Sorry, Orioles fans. Yeah, even as an Orioles fan, when you look at the rest of the AL East, the New York Yankees, no. The Boston Red Sox, no. The Toronto Blue Jays, fat chance. I'm never going to root for any of them. And really, I'm not going to root for Tampa Bay either, but at least with Tampa Bay, I can respect them. Because when you look at their team, as you mentioned, a super small market market team, bottom three payroll practically every single year, their stadium leaves a lot to be desired. I'll just leave it at that. They draft well, they trade well, they develop well. And I think that's the big thing. You have to have a really good farm system and a really good developmental staff to really develop those farm players because if you don't then your small market philosophy practically goes out the window because your key way to bring in good players is by developing and if you can't develop you're going to be left in a bad spot they pitch really really well and they develop all of those pitchers very well no matter if it's in a relief role or a starting role or an opening role they use the numbers they put in matchups that benefit them a lot more effectively than I think a lot of other teams do, even though a lot of other teams bring in a lot of matchups too. So I think overall from Kevin Cash, from the front office to the farm system, from the developmental staff, all of it is really good. And that's why you see Tampa Bay being as good as they are. And this is why you'll see Tampa Bay, maybe not in the world series next year. It's really hard to get to the world series in consecutive years, but they're definitely going to make a run for it. So I think overall you have to give props to Tampa Bay. As for my prediction for game six, I think the Dodgers close it out too. I'm not going to say it's going to be a blowout in LA's favor, but I think they win this by not a hefty margin, but a reasonable margin. So I think around two, three, four runs. I think they're going to come out early. Blake Snell has been really good. I think out of all the starters and pitchers that Tampa Bay has had, I think Blake Snell has shown the most upside and overall filth that I think a lot of the other starters might not have. So I think even with that said, I think that the Dodgers can work the count. And if they can work the count and not Blake Snell out relatively early, Blake Snell in the past has had issues with pitch counts. If they can do that relatively early and get to that bullpen, it's only going to benefit the Dodgers as the game progresses. So I think the Dodgers do close this out too. I think they score a good amount of runs. And I think they limit the runs by Tampa Bay well enough to not make it as much of a nail biter as, previous games have been in the past for the Dodgers. So I think the Dodgers close it out as well. Shifting gears to the NFL for a couple topics real quick. The NFC. Now we know the NFC East is nothing but not that good. Let's just leave it like that. But when you look at the rest of the teams in that conference, Sean, when you think of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, yes, we're sticking with the Tampa Bay theme. 
when you think of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, are they the most complete team out of the NFC? What do you see upside-wise from that team compared to other NFC teams? Are they the team to beat? Well, first of all, yes, the NFC East is absolutely terrible. The Cowboys are down to the third string quarterback and the Washington football team has the top total defense in the NFL because they keep, because they keep beating up on other NFC East teams It is a disaster, but Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're the team to beat. as much as a part of me really doesn't want to admit it. And I wish the Raiders would have beaten them to be perfectly honest. The, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are the best all around team. They smoked the Green Bay Packers 38 to 10. So that settles that debate. I don't need to go into those two teams. Tampa Bay settled that debate right there. They, they smoked them. They, they, they ran green, green Bay to, to the, to the Gulf of Mexico. It was that bad. 38 unanswered points. And as far as Seattle, Seattle, have you seen every Sunday night game the Seahawks have played? It has been an instant classic. And they can't cover anybody. They can't stop anybody. Despite Russell Wilson just being incredible, yes, he did have a few tournaments against the Cardinals, but the Seahawks defense literally cannot stop anybody. Jamal Adams has still been out. He's only played two games this season. So that is very unfortunate for them. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers are top 10 in defense, which I cannot believe considering that their secondary has been off over the years. But Jamel Dean and Antoine Winfield Jr., a couple rookies have really bolstered the secondary to one of the, I can't believe I'm saying this, one of the NFL's best. When I have watched like on-ball secondary coverage, which has been god-awful in the NFL this year, the Buccaneers have been there making a lot of plays. The Buccaneers' secondary is aggressive, and they're actually covering wide receivers, which most of the NFL cannot seem to do nowadays. And their front seven is very good. Devin White's closing speed, good Lord. See that play on Derek Carr where he just tracked down Carr before he got the first down and just whammed him? Wow. And, yeah, that, that guy was on LSU at one point, which, which he was an absolute stud, as you know. Yeah, the, the Buccaneers are the most complete team. And, oh, by the way, Tom Brady is still throwing dimes out here. He threw five touchdown passes against the Las Vegas Raiders. I almost said the Oakland Raiders there. And while their receiving core has made a Chris Gowans in, they got Antonio Brown. Well, I swear, this is, this is becoming the NFL equivalent of Thanos assembling the Infinity Gauntlet. Just weapon after weapon. But what's the ultimate weapon? None other than Tom Brady's favorite target, Rob Gronkowski. Gronkowski in the last couple games have really started to break out as a lethal weapon once again. The fact that Brady and Gronk duo is back is absolutely terrifying. As a diehard Patriots fan, I know all about how great Brady and Gronk are together. I know all about that. That that basically def- the, those those two's combination basically defines my sports life. And to see them doing it with the Buccaneers and the fact the Buccaneers have a legit defense is absolutely terrifying for the rest of the NFL. They would have beaten the Chicago Bears if they didn't if they didn't shoot themselves in the foot with penalties every other drive. And week one against the Saints, they, they just weren't ready yet. They didn't have a preseason. 
and the Saints came out fine. The Saints actually had Michael Thomas at the time when he wasn't when he wasn't punching opposing players in the in the face. So yeah, the the Buccaneers they're, they have a top ten defense. Tom Brady's dropping dies, and Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette have been a lethal one-two combination in the backfield. I really, really want to see in the playoffs Tampa Bay play Seattle because Tom Brady Russell Wilson would just be the perfect. I think that'd be the perfect NFC Championship game. I, I would love to see those two battle once again, like they did in the greatest Super Bowl of all time, known as Super Bowl Forty Nine. So, yeah. Tampa Buccaneers are the most complete team in the NFC. They should be taken seriously. That they are absolutely terrifying. Oh, wait a minute, man. Oh boy. I thought Sean was about to go onto a soapbox and his fandom for new England was about to show out again. It was, they were showing glimpses of it when you're talking about Brady and Gronk, but let's get back to the bucks. You pretty much hit it on the head for practically every single point that I'm going to bring up, but I'm just going to reiterate. It's weapons galore for the Bucks, And it's actually very interesting considering the fact that, yes, they have Ronald. Yes, they have Fournette. Yes, they have Miller. They have Gronk. They have Evans. They're about to get Antonio Brown. But even with all those weapons, they arguably could have had more if injuries didn't happen. They lost Howard for the year. Godwin has been hurt. So even with those injuries, they still have enough weapons for Tom Brady to succeed. And I think that's really good because not only do they have weapons up close, they have the ground and pound running backs in Fournette and Jones, but they also have the receivers and tight ends to really lengthen the field and lengthen out opposing defenses. And the problem with Tom Brady last year was, well, he probably has a good arm, but he doesn't have the weapons to throw to. But when you look at Tom Brady with weapons, even though he's well over 40 years old now, he still has enough arm strength to really make down the field passes and those short passes as well which keeps the defense and the secondary as a whole honest. And I think if you can spread the defense out with the air raid kind of style that Bruce Arians brings as head coach of the Bucks, that's a really good sign. But I think the surprise, and as you mentioned, it has to be the defense. And really, it's not so much the front seven. The front seven last year for Tampa Bay was actually pretty solid. They had some nice sacking power. They tackle very well. But this season, that strength from last season has transferred over quite well. They still tackle. They still sat. Devin White actually leads the team in tackles out of everybody else. So I think that's really good. They have depth there. They can really get to the quarterback, and they really got to Aaron Rodgers a couple weeks ago. And they got to Derek Carr, as you mentioned. So quarterbacks are going to be fearful going into any game, going up against that front seven. But the surprise to me is that secondary. And I thought going into the season that the secondary would improve, and it definitely has improved. And as you mentioned, Sean, it has to be the aggression that has really seen this unit improve exponentially. They have more interceptions than anyone in the league, except for the Colts. The Colts have 10. The Buccaneers have nine. Now, the Buccaneers are tied with a few other teams for nine. But the fact that we're talking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers intercepting and having a solid and aggressive secondary, if you said that a year ago, I'll have what you're having, please. I don't know what you're getting at the bar, but give me that. It sounds pretty strong. Let me have that. And I think when you look at their secondary unit, Antoine Winfield Jr., Carlton Davis, Mike Edwards, the other players you mentioned, the thing that really stands out to me, and maybe we didn't give Tampa Bay enough credit last year. Yes, their secondary was subpar last year, but maybe that came from just the inexperience. 
when you look at all the explosive players on the secondary for Tampa Bay, all of them pretty much have less than three years of experience at the NFL level. They're all relatively young. They have high upside. And maybe just now they're finding their group. Maybe just now they're finding that aggression. Maybe just now they're finding that great coverage that leads to explosive plays because they're not just stopping the ball. They're not just preventing the wide receivers and tight ends and running backs from making plays. They're making the plays themselves. The secondary, as I mentioned, they're intercepting the ball. They're making explosive plays. There's a difference between a good defense and an aggressive defense. And to me, aggressive defenses are what truly wins championships on the defensive side of the ball. That's what makes the Pittsburgh Steelers so scary. That's what can make the Kansas City Chiefs even scarier that we've seen this year. That's what made the Baltimore Ravens scary in years past. So if the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to make a run for the NFC title, I think they had to have an aggressive secondary, and they definitely have it. But even when you compare Tampa Bay to the rest of the NFC, well, I think just from an overall complete standpoint, I think they definitely take the cake easily. Let's just go through some of the other teams, shall we? The Seattle Seahawks, defensive issues. Secondary issues, even with Jamal Adams. Green Bay, well, they got demolished by Tampa Bay several weeks ago. But the problem with Green Bay that I think is their lack of weapons. Does Aaron Rodgers have enough weapons to really lengthen the secondary out? I don't think so. The Arizona Cardinals, youth, they had never been on the stage before. Can they perform at the postseason? The Chicago Bears, well, we saw Monday Night Football. They don't have the offense either. The San Francisco 49ers, hell, they've been destroyed by injuries. Can those injury bugs really be overcome? I don't think so. The Los Angeles Rams, they've been a little inconsistent. They have depth issues as well. So I think overall, from a depth standpoint, from an upside standpoint, from an experience standpoint, I think the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have to be the team that people have to look at and teams have to look at to really say, you know what? They should be the NFC favorites for the Super Bowl. And that's a very crazy thing to say. But I think just from the overall roster construction, you have to think about it. And I think you have to realistically say that is the case. I am not I am not surprised you also agree, considering you've been on you've been on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers hype train ever since they got Tom Brady. You wrote an article for the Rich Report about a week or two after they signed Tom Brady saying welcome to Tampa Brady or Tampa Brady, whichever, whichever one it was. But it is well-deserved. They are frightening. And I, I love seeing an aggressive secondary because I cannot stand soft defenses just allowing easy completions all game long. It is, it is a pet peeve of mine in the NFL, and the Buccaneers are not one of those teams that allow that. It is very satisfying to see. Also, Gronk, very- spike, also, also Gronk spikes are great, too, as much as okay. that he's not doing it on my team. Because my oh, team is yeah. terrible right now. Okay, settle down there, Patriots fan. I told you, you're not going to go on your Patriots fandom. And we're not going to, no, no, no. Let's move on real quick. <laughs> so one of the pet peeves I have, and a very unfortunate thing that has happened a lot this season, has been injuries to star players. And another star player hit the dust with a season-ending injury this past week. Odell Beckham Jr. tore his ACL and is out for the year. Baker Mayfield threw a interception and it will be Jay tried to defend the interception, but he got injured and now he's out for the year. So now the question arises, you know, when OBJ came onto the scene in the NFL, those so many years ago, he made the catch 
with the New York Giants. He was a very young, up-and-coming player. But now you look at him with all these injuries, all the inconsistencies, all the chemistry issues, all the player personality issues he's brought. And now with this torn ACL, instead of him being 22-23, he's now 28-29, about to be 30 soon over the next couple of years. So, Sean, my question to you is, are we ever going to see that explosive OBJ again? Will it be with the Cleveland Browns? Will it be with another team? Have we seen the peak of OBJ, although so many years ago? Is this it for him? He had a season-ending ankle injury in 2017. Now he has a torn ACL in 2020. I sadly think that his prime is dwindling. I still think he's going to be a solid receiver when he comes back, but hes I don't think he's going to have the same explosion that he had considering his second season-ending injury. And on top of, you know, his lack of, let's just say, what's the word for it? Integrity? Discipline. There we go. That's the word. Discipline. I think that OBJ is really going to start to fade after this year. This was a very unfortunate injury to see. And honestly, OBJ, he, I just don't think he's going to be the same. He had mentally he hasn't been the same since the Josh Norman game in 2015, which is still one of the craziest NFL regular season games of all time. Cause what on earth was that? But OBJ I, I don't see him being as explosive considering he's starting to get a bit older and he's had a second season in the injury. It's a tough blow. It's really unfortunate, but it is, it is what it is. I hope he comes back strong, but I don't really see it realistically happening considering this is his second major injury. Before I say my segment on OBJ, we have some breaking news actually from Ian Rappaport. Sean, have you seen it? I have seen it. Okay, so the news. Cowboys defensive end, Everson Griffin, is no longer a Cowboy. He is now a Detroit Lion. Sean, take it away. What do you think of this trade? So Everson Griffin for the Dallas Cowboys has been traded to the Detroit Lions in an exchange for draft compensation. We don't know exactly what the – oh, it's, it's now a conditional six-round pick. So that's a solid move for the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions have a, a decent defense. It's a mediocre defense. They have had some light competition this season. And they bolstered their pass rush. And I think this is a solid addition for the Detroit Lions as they're in the midst of a, of a wild card contention now. They they allowed us all to laugh at the Atlanta Falcons as the Falcons choked again. Like, sorry, I cannot keep a straight face. See, the Atlanta Falcons just continue to make us all laugh and have so much joy as they choke. And the Lions benefited, even though they're the ones that choked week one against the Chicago Bears. They're three and three. They won back-to-back road games. And now their pass rush has been bolstered. And by the time that this podcast is posted, I will have a briefing on this trade for thecannonclark.com. So be sure to check that out. Yeah, I think this is a good trade for the Lions. When you compare the NFC to the AFC, I think the AFC is a lot deeper, a lot stronger. And when you compare it to the NFC, I think the NFC, aside from Tampa Bay that we already mentioned, there really isn't a quote-unquote complete team. And while Everson Griffin definitely does not make the Detroit Lions a, quote, complete team, 
it gives them a chance to compete against a lot of the other teams in the NFC that also bring flaws to the table. Look, the Lions have flaws themselves. No one's going to discount that. But with this move, it gives them the opportunity to compete a little bit better. And with the playoff format this year, seeing an expanded format with another team making it in, maybe they have a shot to make it. From the Cowboys' perspective at this point, what this tells me as a Cowboys fan is the rebuild might be on. Might. I'm not going to say is on. There are other players they could possibly trade to really define whether it's a rebuild. But what they're telling me is that time for next year, we're going to probably throw in the towel this year. We're going to try to get draft picks when we can, restart the defense, maybe get some young players in the draft stockpile the picks that's really what it boils down to and that's what the Cowboys got it wasn't a first rounder it wasn't a second rounder but Griffin was never ever going to give you that in a million years it gives you a conditional pick I'm all for it rebuild was probably needed for a year or so so we'll see what happens but yeah going back to the OBJ topic you pretty much hit the nail on the head Sean because you know you're the NFL guy you pretty much hit the nail on everything related to NFL OBJ, when he came into the league, as I, as I know from an LSU fan, really explosive guy. And he was really explosive at LSU, considering the fact that up to that point, LSU really didn't have a solidified explosive quarterback. And even without that explosive quarterback, he was still able to make those great routes, those great catches, those great touchdown drives. So when he came into the league, I thought, well, he'll probably do the same thing. But with all the injuries, with the chemistry issues, with the intangible factor, netted into the numbers factor there was reason for concern and even over the past couple years I think the intangible factor of the chemistry and the personality so to speak I think has actually kind of improved I think he's been a lot better I think he's matured a lot more but unfortunately maturity and those intangibles cannot take away the health issues ankle issue issue now an ACL tear at some point I think he will come back I think he definitely will, but will he be that out route? Will he be that vertical pass catcher that can really make the explosive plays with the dynamic speed down the field? I'm not too sure. And depending on how long it takes for him to recover from the injury, we probably might've seen his last tenure as a Cleveland Brown. I think that when you look at OBJ with the Browns, I always thought he was going to take off with them. And I think he was very close to taking off with them this year, even with the lack of receptions and targets. I think he was very close. I think he was about to find that chemistry with Baker Mayfield. But unfortunately, he will not find that chemistry now. I think with that said, I think he will definitely not be a Cleveland Brown when he eventually comes back, even with the contract taken into account. Where he goes, I'm not too sure. A team will definitely take a flyer on him but they're not going to take a flyer on him knowing he's going to be their wide receiver one. He's going to go to a team where they have some depth in case OBJ does not pan out. And as he gets older, potentially by the time he comes back from this injury, we'll be midway through next season. And by that point, he'll be 29 ish, almost going to be 30. So you have to question whether that speed will be there, whether that explosiveness will be there. And it's a very unfortunate thing. It is a tough thing in any sport, especially in football. Injuries can derail a player so, so much in such a physical sport. And it unfortunately happened to OBJ. So I hope, I wish him all the best in his recovery. And I hope he comes back full guns up blazing for either the Cleveland Browns or for another team. I agree. I hope, I hope he does come back well. And 
let's let's see if he stays clean. I think he possibly can because he he is has guaranteed money through the next few years, and because he has season ending injury, they wouldn't get much for him. So I think they possibly give it another shot, but it wouldn't surprise me either way. That will conclude episode 14 of Ahead of the Count. I wish your host, Johnny Crane, joined by my great co-host, Sean Clark. Sean, thank you for joining me, as always. Be sure to tune in next week for episode 15, where Sean will be hosting, I will be co-hosting. Until then, folks, stay safe, stay sound, and we'll see you then. Later.